Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how is there any gain in You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. It is so good to be together. This is awesome. Um, Let's go ahead and turn to uh, Ecclesiastes. We've taken two weeks off, so I'm very thankful for John preaching actually two weeks ago. And then last week at the picnic, we were blessed to hear Nathan share with us from the Word. Uh, Both of these men have been an encouragement to me um, as we talked through what they were going to preach on, as I kind of imbibed it and thought about it, and hopefully you as well meditated throughout the week uh, on the truth that they give. So thank you, gentlemen, for proclaiming Christ faithfully. Uh, It is a good gift. I don't know if you guys all know that. Uh, I think you do. But let me just remind you, it's a huge gift that God has given to us men who can proclaim the word accurately from the Bible. Uh, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 today. We will be, we, the last time we were together, we were in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. We're going to cover verses 8 through 6, 12. That's a long section here. Uh, so I'm excited to get back into Ecclesiastes. Kohelet has a whopper for us today. Um, but as we do so, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. Before we read, I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis so that you can prepare yourself while you read through this, because it's going to take us on a little bit of a a journey, a thought journey here. So I want to give you a little bit of this so you can be clued in and ready when we read it. The passage here today is going to open a discussion on oppression, something that he's actually talked about already in the book of Ecclesiastes. But quickly, we're going to see that this idea of oppression is giving way to help us understand what's underneath that oppression. What's producing that oppression? A person's love for money and material wealth as gain. That envious pursuit of wealth is foolish. We know this from other areas of the Bible. He's going to show us very clearly here. The envious pursuit only brings dissatisfaction, and actually increased money brings increased problems as well. We'll see that here. There's an expenditures go up to the point that he can't sleep. And the wealth itself, these riches, are also foolish. Not just the pursuit of them, but the riches themselves are foolish. They can either be lost in this life or lost at death. One or the other. They're eventually going to be gone from us. We're going to see that here. Either way, the pursuit of this object, money, can only lead to darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. And so what we're seeing right at the beginning here is this pursuit of earthly wealth and gain here is utterly foolish. So Kahelet, what he's going to do here is tell us what is good and wise. So he turns the corner and he encourages everyone to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the lot that God has given to them. He doesn't simply say, eat, drink, and be merry. He tells us to eat and drink and be enjoying the toil that God has given to us. This is our lot. That's the secret of being, whether you're rich or poor, the secret of living well and wisely is to enjoy the lot that God has given us. So at this point, he describes the envious rich person who sees money as something to gain. And this person, even though they have everything they want, they still come out miserable. And as he looks on, just like the rest of us, it's a grievous evil to him. 
all this work and for what? Misery. It's hevel. Even if a man has every blessing, will see long life, many children, but does not have joy, he's worse off than a stillborn child. Strong language. And thus we learn that the joy and satisfaction that we are seeing here is the true meaning of living a life well to its fullest. In the final verses then, he will reiterate that discussion that's been given us here is, is wisdom, certainly is. But that even wisdom will come up short in the long run. Um, we're going to see this idea of don't worry, be happy doesn't really solve all of our eternal problems. At the end, we are left with a joyful, wonderful life, but then at the end, staring into the darkness, which is eternity, not knowing what happens after death. This is a sobering moment. And we must contend then, as mortals, with the immortal, with the one who has been always and will always ever be. So we must still come to grips with this God. So this is where we're going this morning. It's a lot to do, but I want you to stay with me because we're going to see the whole thing. It's both for us as believers who need to hear the truth resounded in our hearts that we would continue to be aligned to his character and find grace in Jesus Christ. But also for those that are joining us today and listening and just curious, this is for you. This is the, for the philosophers thinking, what is the best way to live this life? What's wise? Kohelet, our, our, our writer here, is going to tell us exactly what that is. So let's do this together. I want you to read along with me Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 12. This is God's word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he, has a, he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came in from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all the desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. 
it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and, he also, and he, has, he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word together, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take these words and drive them deep into our hearts. Would you grant us repentance and faith? Would you give us grace to encourage our lonely hearts? Would we trust that if we have Christ, we have everything? Would you teach us, Lord, to follow you, to obey with gladness? Give us joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever watched Orson Welles' classic, Citizen Kane, you know that the most important words of the entire movie are at the beginning. The one word that he says as he's in his dying breath, Rosebud. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if it's worth your time watching the whole movie or maybe just watching a synopsis. It's kind of long and artsy, so I'll let you make that decision. Um, but the rest of the film is kind of a journey throughout his life trying to help us understand what was so important about this person or thing or place and trying to answer the question, what is or who is or where is Rosebud? And what does it have to do with his entire life being summed up at the end by saying this with his dying breath? And slowly the film kind of reveals that Charles Foster Kane, a millionaire newspaper tycoon, uh, who although having very humble beginnings, rose to extreme power and wealth and prestige. A man who truly had everything that his heart desired, and yet in the end, we find him alone, in the darkness, depressed, and ultimately completely unfulfilled. And this enigmatic character as you go along is complex and mysterious, and you're trying to figure him out. And we're kept guessing all the way to the end, what is Rosebud, and what could it possibly have meant to someone for a man of this stature. And along the way, the audience kind of gets pulled into this, this man's life and all that he had. Success, riches, possessions, women, honor, prestige. And yet, by the time you get to the end, the viewer is not so excited about being like Citizen Kane. He's left wondering how all this awesome stuff could leave him so unhappy. I've entitled today's sermon... Don't worry, be happy. 
Now, there might be a better, more theological title for this sermon, but I think this one will catch. I think you'll remember it. And it captures the philosophy and the root part of what Kohelet is actually going to teach us in this passage. But it certainly isn't the final word, as we'll see. So stay with me. If you remember our time through Ecclesiastes, we came to through this very dark portion, chapter 4. He talked about oppression and difficulty and death even. He spoke of these things within our world, and we learned that the only solution to these things, the way to live through them, is actually to obey the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But then as we go into chapter 5, we realize that that's actually based on the first great commandment, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. He, he gets us grounded in verses 1 through 7 that the way we should come to God is in true awe, awe and reverence, with true worship, not playing games. We actually must pr- bring ourselves to God at, for Him and Him alone, not ent- uh, uttering foolish, empty words. But in verse 8, as we come to our text now, he turns back to the problem of living in this world, a world that has been affected by the fall, by sin. I mean, a, a world that is subject to futility, held in bondage to corruption, so says Romans 8. Let's start by reading verse 8 here in chapter 5. He says this, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now our author is admitting a problem that we all see, that we all see throughout the world. Uh, oppression, the selfish abuse of another person for the sake of some sort of personal gain. But here we see that it's more than just personal. If you remember back in chapter 4, we saw a lot more stuff that really talked about the, per- the people themselves who did the oppression and those who are oppressed. But now we're seeing it on a larger, almost systemic level, it looks like, as though these officials are in on the game as well. And above the officials are other officials who are also gaining from this. And we're seeing that there's, in one sense, this is the way of a sinful world. And he reminds us, guys, don't be amazed by this. This is life under the sun. The person who is over us takes their cut, but that person has someone over them who takes their cut. And this goes on and on. And to the little guys left dealing with selfishness and greed of those who are above them. And even at the end, he makes this statement, which is kind of gives me a chuckle. In verse 9, he makes this comment that even though oppression is bad, if these officials, including the king, are having these fields worked, it is gain for us all. It's not a gain if they leave them fallow and don't do any, and none of the workers can do anything. This is obviously a bad thing. And frankly, this isn't a very satisfying you know, passage for us when we read this, especially for those who are oppressed. He doesn't really solve our problem here. And he causes us to get a little bit upset. But we need to see that he isn't addressing this problem to make it better in this passage here. He's bringing up a passage or a problem that is going to launch us into a far deeper and important problem that not only the rich have, but that we all have. It's in here. It's going on in every single one of us. That's a heart problem. It's a philosophy of life problem, a problem that everyone deals with. He wants to talk about what drives oppression. In verse 10 through 12, he tells us that envy and a love for money as gain is the real problem here. 
something that wants and wants and wants to gain material possessions. But he's not calling it out per se. He's going to explain how foolish such a pursuit is. Listen to verse 10 10 through 12. He says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Kohelet, he comes along and tells us that a love for money and wealth will only bring two things, dissatisfaction and more trouble, more problems to the one who goes after them. First, he talks about the pursuit of money. This is kind of like the action of actually going after this pursuit. And he shows us that it reveals something. The person who does this develops a craving. And that craving is never satisfied. It's never fulfilled. The one who gets an income is never satisfied. The one who gets more riches wants more riches over and over again. And you know, it was John D. Rockefeller, right? The richest man in American history who said, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. Man, what a sad state. But we recognize it's true. The pursuit is never ending. The pursuit will never satisfy. It only brings dissatisfaction. But it also brings extra problems, these increased problems. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage is it to the owner but to see them with his eyes? He just looks and sees it go in and go out. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. He says that when you are successful at getting more riches and more wealth and more possessions, you have to pay more to keep those riches and those possessions and those businesses up and going. We understand this. Those who are engaged in pursuing wealth and keeping it and managing it and doing well have a very full schedule and a very full brain, constantly worrying about this and that and making sure this doesn't get dropped and that doesn't get dropped. They have very little time for anything that doesn't serve their ultimate goal. And we know that this will even cut into the way that they sleep. They're constantly bombarded with all their cares. They're concerning themselves with what they own. Contrasted, the poor man really doesn't have too much to be concerned about. Trying to put food on the table, that is certainly a concern. But as far as all the different things that the rich man has to concern himself with, the poor man has an understanding of simplicity and lives for these simple things. He's concerned and doesn't keep him awake at night as he is filled and ready to sleep. How about you? Would you assume that most, I would assume at least, that most of us have progressed somehow in our jobs? We've gotten better with time. We've done well either in our businesses and our stations in life. Do you ever crave more and more success or wealth or possessions or any of these things? Do you recognize these things even now as we kind of point them out to be able to step back and say, oh, I see that that's good, but I keep wanting more. Do you crave riches or success or possessions? Is, there, is, is your time and brain space occupied by building and keeping wealth? Do you realize that these things will never actually satisfy you? And what they're actually ingraining you is a pattern of dissatisfaction? Friend, this is foolish. Don't be deceived 
by this strong allure that somehow if I keep wanting this and I keep getting it, eventually I'll be satisfied. The Bible shows us so clearly that we will never get enough. We just need one more dollar. The pursuit of wealth brings a man dissatisfaction and increased problems. But that's not all. There's, there's more here. The actual thing that we're pursuing here in this passage, money, riches, that itself is foolish. This is what he says. Look at verse 13 through 17. There's a grievous evil. He's going to go on to talk about it this way. A grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil with that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Not only is the pursuit, this, this, this dissatisfied craving over and over a problem, but the actual object is fleeting. It goes away. It degrades. It rots and is lost. When riches are seen as gain, when possessions become incredibly important for us to hold on to, we've forgotten the second law of thermodynamics. Seriously, I'm, I'm talking about science, right? Let things degrade and go away and tend towards destruction. Yes, it is okay to boil this down to the law of decay in one sense. All of your stuff will decay in one way or another. All of your money is not permanently yours. Here we see that riches that are held closely will disappoint. It's going to either happen with one way or another, right? It's either going to happen at the end of your life. You can't take any with you. Or it may happen that you lose it in some sort of poor venture and you lost, lose it during your life. In verse 13, he says that those who keep them do so to their own hurt. He's talking about seeing wealth as gain and that can only lead to further pain and harm. In verse 14, he plays out a scenario in which money is lost in some sort of bad venture. And that's not to say that he did something wrong. This could have been a natural disaster. This could have been that someone stole it from him. This could have been that something out of his control happened to him, but that he lost the money that he had in this bad venture. And now he has a son and he can't even support his son. Instead of a handful of quietness, he used to have two handfuls of toil. He, he gained it and he held on to it. But now even that, he has nothing, as the verse says, in his hand. He's deliberately pointing us back to what we know from 4, chapter 4 here, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Now in verse 15, we get the, the Job 121, right? We, we, we know this phrase, you brought nothing into the world, you can take nothing out with you. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Either you will lose it while you're alive and be upset, or you will lose it at your death. Think about this. Is that the kind of investment that you really want to make with all of your abilities and strength and will and heart? You want to put them into that object? The one that can be lost like that? Either it's going to be lost at the end of your life, or it's going to be lost sometime during your life. Verse 17 shows us a life that understands this loss. It is a loss, 
in a life of loneliness, eating in the darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Guys, money is a very poor currency to depend on. I'm talking about big picture here. We, we depend on it a lot. And it, it does a lot of stuff. But for us to somehow think as though that is gain in this life, we are being fools. He shows us so clearly that this is true. What, what, was, what is this like for us? What about your properties or your investments? What about your insurances and your businesses? Do you, do you, do you think somehow that they are safe? Your savings accounts, your 401ks, go ahead, list it all. You think they're secure? Do you not realize that they could crumble like that? It's happened over and over and over again through history. This is a bad place for us to put our investment. Friend, at any minute, these things can be taken away from us. And again, no fault of our own. Not that we're doing something evil. But then what? Do we unknowingly give ourselves to the gaining of material wealth without any thought about how volatile and crumbling it really is? This is just wisdom showing us the truth. Don't do it. Don't put your life stock in riches here and material gains. They will not go with you. They are fleeting. Now at this point, we've heard all the negative stuff. We've heard Kohelet denounce material possessions for what they are. And now what he wants to do is say, behold, like, look here. Let me show you what is good and fitting. In other words, he showed us what's bad and foolish, and now he's going to show us what is wise and good. I think he's even using some creational language here to show us the intention that God has made us for. Uh, We've seen the bad, the foolish, this relentless pursuit of wealth as gain, but now he turns to us and tells us what is good and wise. Verse 18 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Friends, this is the center. This is the beautiful center of wise living here under the sun. Joy and satisfaction is what he's proclaiming is the meaning of life. Uh, But the best joy is actually the enjoyment of our God-given lot as it is from him. Now, let's take a closer look here. He says that one should eat and drink and enjoy our work under the sun, the few days that God has given, for this is his lot, his portion, the thing that is his. We've heard this call before. If you remember back at the beginning of the book, in 2, 24 through 26, Then in 3, 12 through 14, these calls to eat and drink and enjoy the toil that God has given to us. He does it here, then he will also do it in 8, 15, and in chapter 9, 7 through 10. It's a common call for us. But here he's not only pointing to the activities, he's actually pointing to the enjoyment of those activities. He's calling us to enjoy them. Even more clearly is the enjoyment of those activities as our God-given lot. All these things are important. You're going to see how, how, how helpful this is as we go along. But it's easy to say, just enjoy what you've got. But that's not exactly what he says here. He reminds us of the enjoyment of these activities as our God-given lot. This means that there is an acknowledgement 
that these things are from the hand of a sovereign God, that they are not separated from our sovereign creator, designer, and sustainer of all creation. Everyone then is encouraged, or, and even the poor here, to see God's gift of food and drink and work as his lot and to be satisfied because it is from God. But unless we thought that only the poor could receive this, that only poor people could rightly find joy before God, he turns to say the same thing to the rich. Look at this verse 19. He says that they must also enjoy the lot that God has given them. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift from God. These are not unimportant little pieces here. Not only does he say that he's been given wealth and possessions, but he's been given power to enjoy them, to accept his lot from God, and rejoice in his toil. And Kohelet points out that this is a gift from God. Uh, These last three things that God gives are extremely important. Kohelet says that God gives them wealth and possessions, but he's asking them to both enjoy and to accept and to rejoice in what God has given. In other words, the poor man and the rich man must see all of their life as gift, not gain. Either way, if you don't have gain and you're upset about it, remember life is gift. If you have a bunch of stuff, remember it's not gain, it's gift. And it is from the hand of God. Now to be sure, this does not mean, oh good, I've got riches to enjoy. I should eat, drink, and be merry for the sake of myself. Enjoy it all as I can. Live it up. My goal should be utter pleasure. That's not at all what he is saying here. He says that these things must be rightly held as gifts from God, which means they should be used as God requires for joy and blessing. That which is to flow out of us as God works in us to be like him. Far from condoning a life of pleasure-seeking only, this passage actually centers on the one that gives the gifts and calls us to receive them from him. Um, Jesus is pretty clear here in Luke 12 as well, if you remember this passage. 1248, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Thus, we recognize that the giving of the gifts and the receiving of the gifts must be in line with our understanding of where they come from, and thus their purpose. The poor man and the rich man are called to live a life of joy in whatever state they are. Now, does that sound like anything you already know from the New Testament? Paul seems to think the same thing. Philippians 4, 10-13 says this. In verse 10, he starts out, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That's how he starts. But then he says on down further, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And this is his answer to it all. I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. What's the answer? I mean, he is pointing back to Jesus Christ. And he alone can provide eternal joy. That's why in Philippians 4.4, he tells us as a command, which is wild, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. 
Why? Because you have Christ. He actually commands us to joy. So I'll just stop for a minute. Do we see the absolute necessity of joy in our lives? I hope you recognize that this life isn't about suffering through it. And somehow if we do enough suffering, then we get the joy later on. He calls us to joy now in him. This is by faith in God alone. Life isn't about money or possessions or material gain, but about enjoying whatever part of this existence God has granted us. If he has given us much, enjoy it and bless. If he has given us little, enjoy it and bless others. Only when we see ourselves as recipients of the sovereign God who gives gifts will we properly live a life that he has called us to. So, is joy what you are pursuing right now? What does your heart and your paycheck and everything in your life show that you are going after? All these things, unfortunately, if we're not careful, will betray our hearts. So we must actually think about this before we go into the rest of our lives and ask, Lord, where is my heart? What do I love? What are the things that I pursue? What does my life say about the thing that I want the most? He says that a wise life is one that enjoys these things as gifts from God. This leads us then to the central statement, which is verse 20. It says this, God keeps the enjoyer occupied with joy in his heart. Now, this is, this is a rich verse. When I first read it, I, I just passed over it kind of here. But let me just read it. It's, at the first glance, you may not realize it, but what he is doing is employing his people. God is employing us. And you'll see what with. Think this through. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, this isn't a statement about forgetting things, but rather a statement about what actually matters. He is saying that one who finds joy in his lot from God doesn't pine for the old days and all the things back there that were so good, the things that are lost to him, but rather understands because from beginning to end in Christ, he has been occupied with the task of being joyful. This is incredible. He's actually saying that it is the chief end, we know this already as well, for us to enjoy God, to pursue him as our greatest joy and blessing. He is calling us here to be occupied by God with God. This phrase might not mean much to us at first, but it ties back to another phrase that we saw in chapter 2. If you remember this, he talked about how the sinners were occupied or what they did for their business. Do you remember this? In 2.26, he used the same root word. He said this, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business, same word, same root word here, the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This idea, this word business, is the same root word that we have here in our passage in chapter 5, verse 20. We see that God employs or keeps his people busy with or has them doing the business of joy. Like that's what we're called to do. If that doesn't really, at least for me, man, I thought it was when I was meditating on it, is my life bound up in joy in God? Or am I trying to muddle through somehow? Am I trying to make it? Just trying not to sin? Or am I pursuing 
joy. That is what he says at the center of the one who understands what real life, wise life is about. Toil, striving, darkness, anger, vexation, or joy. You decide. This is the good life and this is what is fitting. This is the wisdom that he is giving to us and that we are called to believe. Remember, that's what this is. This is wisdom literature, right? Ecclesiastes. He's telling us what is good and right and fitting. Joy and satisfaction based on a God-given lot is the right way to live this life. And rather, the envious pursuit of material wealth as gain will end in sorrow and vexation. And this is kind of how he concludes this section as he goes into chapter 6. He says this in verses 1 through 6, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes, talk about the stillborn child, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it, the, the, the stillborn child, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, two thousand years, twice the age of Methuselah, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Wow. I mean, look at this guy. In verse 2, it says that he has wealth and possessions. That's what the other guy had back in 519. But this guy doesn't have only wealth and possessions. He also has honor. Then this final statement that says he lacks nothing that he desires. He has it all. He says this guy's got it all, but he doesn't have what is important. He does not see fit to acknowledge the Lord, and he has not been given the ability to enjoy these things. Instead, a stranger enjoys them. We don't know how this happened, doesn't tell us, but the point is clear here. This man does not have joy and satisfaction. He has it all. List it all out, the properties, the wealth, the fame, everything. He has multiple years. He has a long life. He has many children, all the blessings, and yet he has no satisfaction. Life without joy, then, is meaningless. Kohelet says that this is vanity, a grievous evil. He goes on to compare a joyless person who has everything, even the divine blessings, again, of offspring and long years, to a stillborn baby. Now, if you understand this, he's not making light of stillborns. In fact, he understands how serious this is. In Psalm 58, the psalmist actually calls this as a curse against his enemies. He says this, let them be like the snail that dissolves in a slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. This is a terrible, terrible fate. Kohela is not making light of it. He is making us understand how awful it is to live a life that seems so full without any joy. Are we, are we getting the picture? Are we understanding what he's saying here? It's foolish to have much material things and have no joy. And it is wise to have joy, even if you do not have much material stuff. This is the right way to live. Now, it's not perfect, but it's the right way for us to live. 
We've learned an important lesson then as he reiterates this in 7 through 19. He says this, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and the striving after wind. Now this is a curious little section here. We understand it pretty well at the beginning, but then it gets a little more complicated. He uses this analogy of working to eat, but never being fully satisfied because you get hungry again. And he shows us that this is like the wisdom of seeking satisfaction instead of seeking material possessions because they will not satisfy. But then in verse 8, he seems to say that the wise man and the poor man who is wise have a small advantage over the fool, but not that much of one. Then in verse 9, he says what we already know from chapter 2. Stay with me now. He says this, better is the sight of the eye than the wandering of the appetite. In other words, wisdom is better than folly. But we are left questioning, but is it really better? Okay, that, that sounds better, but like, is, is, it, is it really better? And it really kind of harkens back. We realize that our suspicions are correct in that final phrase, because after saying all that, after giving us wisdom, what does he say? This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This harkens back, if you remember, to 2, verse 13 through 17 in Ecclesiastes. In this passage, he is exasperated at the application of wisdom. He knows that wisdom is better, but it seems like it actually doesn't ultimately land him anywhere. Listen to this. He says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, as he's kind of thinking about this, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have, not, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. He's just given us wisdom. He's just told us to enjoy life, to pursue joy. That's the way we're supposed to live. That's the right way to live, right? And after all that, he's saying, that's wisdom, right? You get it. But this wisdom, it comes short as well. The wisdom about joy and satisfaction is good. I mean, it's, it's really good. It's what makes good sense. Anyone can see it if they slow down and look at a life that's dominated by material gain, that it will bring them misery. That's, that's what wisdom is. We understand that. I mean, again, the guy who wrote it, Bobby, you know, Bobby McFerrin, understood this when he said, don't worry, be happy. He got part of it right. Orson Welles understood this also in Citizen Kane. I won't spoil the movie, but by the end, we realized that Charles Foster Kane really wanted a life with simple enjoyments that even a child has with or without wealth. What a good lesson for us. We understand this, a good one. All humanity, whether Christian or not, can see the brilliance of this wisdom. It's good wisdom. But I would contend that those unbelievers who hold to this, enjoy the simple life mentality, have not thought any further than this life. I said this at the beginning, but they haven't dealt seriously with the fact that we are made for eternity. 
We can have a moderation, an understanding of life, and it's going to be okay and be enjoying what we can. But what happens at your deathbed when you stare the dark, cold eternity that you have no idea what happens in the face? This is what happens here. Wisdom is good and right, and yet, what do we do with eternity? This is here where the music stops. The beauty is gone. The joy comes to an end, and we must deal with something far greater than our existence here on earth. This is what he deals with when he gets to verses 10 through 12. At the end of verse 9, frustration over using wisdom sets in. And where does it lead him? It leads him to the immortal one of eternity. Listen to 10 through 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is one of those apologetics questions. This is the one, this is part of our evangelism, and all of us should be asking this about reality. What happens after we die? Do you know? Do, do, do you really know? Do any of us have any idea? All we've known is life. We don't know what happens after this. This is good philosophy, but what happens after this? Can you dispute the God of eternity? The one who made you? The immortal one? Are you stronger than he? Or as Job says, or God says to Job, where were you when you, I laid the foundation of the earth? Will you contend with the Almighty? Verse 11 says, more words, the more vanity. Uh, he, Job says similarly, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Very wise man. Verse 12 ends with a powerful question for every one of us, especially those who do not acknowledge God. He says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, a happy-go-lucky, secular understanding of joy is a good way to live a decent life. It may avoid some of the heartache of pursuing riches and being rich and like all the different struggles that come along, this relentless pursuit of gain. But I will tell you, it is not safe and secure either. I'm talking about the economy of eternity, which we all understand. Perhaps we put it down, Chapter 3, verse 11 told us that we all have eternity given to us in our hearts, an understanding that there is something much greater than what we can see with our eyes. A person, again, can close their eyes to eternity, pretend that this life is all that there is, but eventually it will come back to haunt them. If a person is honest, they will realize that they are finite, that they need someone, something greater to them than them to answer this eternal question they can come to the position of a mortal created one to their creator, to the immortal, to a place that they are ready to meet their maker. And this brings us rightly then to a place before God that our speaker here is advocating all along, one of humility that fears God. We've already seen this over and over again in Ecclesiastes, but what he is doing is pulling us back again. Here's wisdom, guys. Anyone can use this wisdom but there's something more important and bigger. There's a greater reality in all of this for eternity, and it is God 
himself. So I'll ask you, are, 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 what does this look like for you? Are you listening to this thinking? You know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily need God, but this is good thinking. It's, it's a good lifestyle to enjoy the life that we have. Friend, you too will face the one who is stronger than you. You and I both will face eternity one day. Will you do this alone? Or will you come to Christ for forgiveness and salvation and blessing and joy in him? I call you to do that today. This is true joy. If you don't know Christ but want to, I call you to repent, to turn to him, to love him with your heart, soul, and mind and make him your savior and king. And please come talk to anyone here that you know is a Christian. We want to walk this in discipleship and knowing God. Real joy is found only in the one who gives food, drink, and toil. If we deny those things or we muddy that, we're not going to be rightly joyful. But when we do, we understand true, lasting joy is not in these material possessions and gain, but rather in knowing God. Psalm 16.5 reminds us that those who love God, who joyously submit to him, he is our portion. He is our lot in life. So this passage calls us to live in joy. Not an envious struggle. Not trying to get more and more around us. But to be rich toward God. So let us pursue a life of joy in what God has given. I'm just going to close with this. Paul has said it. And I, I kind of sum it up just saying it this way. If you get Christ, you get everything. But he says it far more eloquently he says this in Philippians 4.11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us joy? Oh, Lord, would you apply this word better than I ever could? Would you please help us think through these things deeply? Would you help us meditate? Would you change us and would we pray sincerely? Would we commune with you? Would we call out with true repentant hearts and humility, reverencing God? And Lord, we ask that you would give us joy. Would you set us about the task of finding it in Christ? Whether we have a lot or we're little, may we trust you and find joy in doing what you have called us to so that as we look at our lives, we recognize that they are a gift from you and that we would respond properly. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit CBC Virginia.